Okay, here I am. I, I thought about loading up the Facebook Live and just pumping this out thing live and direct. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, you know, maybe you need a little more planning than just go and click. You know, you probably do, simply because uh, we are a professional organization. We <laughs> are uh, we are responsible to our... Uh, Shareholders? Shareholders. (laughs) And we just don't do things uh, just because it seems like a good idea at the time. Maybe we should be doing more of that, though. (laughs) Pulling it out of your butt. That seems to work from time to time. Yeah, a little bit more spontaneous. Okay, well, fine. Uh, We don't have a guest tonight, so uh, there's going to be a lot of that, I have a feeling. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Space, the final frontier for stoners. Astrophysicists have turned the signals from our galaxy into jazz music. Which is perfect timing for news that meteorite fragments found in Nevada contain the active ingredient in marijuana. Plus, the inaugural Toronto Vinyl Summit will tell you how you can win a sweet turntable and learn a few tricks about collecting wax, which I apparently clearly need. A concrete example of that is coming up. (laughs) And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Our Milky Way galaxy makes music? This reminds me of the Today Show in Australia when the big news hit that Uranus expels gas twice a day. (laughs) Yeah, Uranus smells like farts. I remember seeing that story, and it took me about 15 minutes for me to get the joke. I thought, okay, it smells like farts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what also smells like farts is the moon. And that was one of the things that they learned when they landed on the moon for the first time. When they came back into the capsule, closed the hatch and took off the helmets, it was like whoever smelt it dealt it. Yeah, no kidding. At the foot of the ladder, the Lambert beds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. Although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. Apparently it's got a bit of a, a, a gassy gunpowder smell. Yeah. And the last thing that you want to do is breathe in moon dust. This is something that I've learned from a number of science fiction novels over the last uh, six months. You cannot breathe in moon dust because even though it is microscopic, I mean, we're talking talcum powder small, the dust particles themselves are very, very spiky. Yes. And they will get lodged in your lung and basically eventually kill you. It's like asbestos. And that was one of the big problems when they landed on the moon. They recognized that this stuff was getting into all of the joints. And they had to make sure that the joints were capable of repelling that as it started to eat away at the cloth of the actual uh, flight suits themselves. Which is going to make it a little difficult for Donald Trump to make good on his promise to turn the moon into a space gas station. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. We have gone way off the rail 
rails here. Let's go back to the start <laughs> of the of, of, of this this paragraph and talk about the Milky Way making music. Okay. Okay. Because I really like this one. We have a galaxy, which is about 100,000 light years across. It completes a rotation in a leisurely 225 to 250 million years for one, you know, one rotation around the galactic center. This galactic gear has been translated into a music by an astronomer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His name is Mark Heyer. And he took 20 years of radio telescope data, figured out an algorithm that translates the movements of gases in the galaxy, in all areas of the galaxy, into musical notes, which allows us to hear what the Milky Way sounds like as it rotates. ScienceAlert.com reports that the gases that fill our interstellar medium are in three phases, atomic, molecular and ionize and they're either moving towards us or away from us so i guess that's part of the whole algorithm that they use they took those three elements and then whether or not they were coming towards us or not to turn them into musical instruments and we sound like jazz the uh the galaxy sounds like jazz so what they did was they translated the musical ins instruments into wood blocks and piano for the molecular gas the acoustic bass is atomic gas and the saxophone is the ionized gas and then if the note goes up it's because the gas is moving towards us if the note is a low note it's for gas that's moving away and the longer note indicates a stronger emission line which brings us full circle back to uranus right okay yeah emission lines yeah, okay, so they're using the Doppler effect. So if it's coming towards you, it's higher pitch. If it's going away from you, it's a lower pitch. Yeah, that's 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 standard redshift, blue shift stuff. Okay. Well, back to the Doppler effect, what about the Kepler effect? Because Johann Kepler wrote in 1619 the harmony of the world, and it was based upon this idea that the planets were musical notes based upon their orbital velocities. So what does this tell us? Um, that's maybe some astronomy programs are overfunded. I don't know. Uh, I think, <laughs> I, I, listen, I think this sort of stuff is cool. I took astronomy in, in university and I, I, I still love this kind of stuff. So I, I think what it does is it helps popularize certain astronomical, cosmological, astrophysics principles that wouldn't otherwise get through the general public. I mean, we need more Neil deGrasse Tysons in the world because people say, well, you know, there's so many problems down here on Earth. Why are we doing these things in space? We should take care of our own planet first before we go out there and figure out what's happening. Well, I think that's short-sighted because it doesn't give us an idea of exactly how special we are in the cosmos and how cool it is that we are so insignificant. And I think that puts everything into perspective. Plus, there's a lot of good science that we can learn. Well, to that point as well, the fact that astrophysics is largely about mathematics, as is music, it yeah. doesn't surprise me much that you can get a, a melody out of the cosmos itself. I just find it interesting that it turns out to be jazz. Well, I think that is more of an arrangement decision on behalf of the astronomer rather than the sound of the galaxy. I think if we assign different instruments, we could probably get a slightly different sound. Yeah. Which would be kind of cool. You know, okay, there, there's a job for, for somebody out there. Take this, 
uh, create an, uh, an API based on this data and uh, allow the end user to assign various instruments to these uh, clouds of moving gas and see what you can come up with. I think it's just perfect that it's jazz, though, because it wasn't that long ago that we got that report that marijuana was discovered in space. And what fuels a jazz musician quite like marijuana? Wait, 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 wait. Marijuana. What do you mean marijuana was discovered in space? Researchers analyzed meteorite fragments of, that were found in the Nevada desert back in 2010. Uh, those from the University of Hawaii discovered tetrahydrocannabinoil, THC, on the meteorite. Oh, come on. Yes. Uh, apparently, it'll, quote, have a huge impact on the science of astrobiology if chemical substances that change brain functions and result in alterations in perception, mood or consciousness in humans find their origin in outer space. What role then has cometary impacts played on the human species or on life as a whole for the planet? The discovery ultimately leaves us with more questions than answers, according to notallowedto.com. Okay, I'm this one I missed. Uh, okay, let's just let's just go down this rat hole for a second. Okay. So they found cannabinoids on meteorite fragments. Yes, which okay. So now I, I pulled up Snopes uh, because. To your point, it's, it's, it's a bit of a concern here. Uh, oh, no, wait, this is different. Apparently, NASA discovered a planet covered in marijuana. Uh. <laughs> and it's false. Oh, but the, the, okay. the, we, haven't, we haven't been able to uh, kibosh the idea that meteorite fragments did have THC on them. We okay. are, we, what are we, uh, a month or so away, two months away from legalization in Canada? Well, and, well, <laughs> well uh, listen, none of the governments at the provincial level across Canada have got their act together for, for July 1st legalization. It's not going to happen July 1st. It, it'll, it'll be later this year, but uh, I, I, I know some stuff and, and you probably hear some stuff because uh, you have people inside government as well that they're not ready for this. Yeah. They're very much not ready for this. No. <laughs> you know, who's ready for it though? The corner stores. Have you noticed that it seems that a drug paraphernalia is now behind the counter of almost every corner store you've seen? My variety store changed owners recently, and the new guy in charge added a bunch of bongs on the back shelf next to where the cigarettes used to be. And out of nowhere, as my daughter and I are getting freezies on that beautiful hot day we had recently, she out of nowhere says, Dad... What are silver screens? <laughs> and I no. look up and they're the little screens that go into bongs. And now I have to make a decision. Am I going to explain to my 11-year-old girl what the screens are for? And if so, I'm going to have to explain to her what a bong is. So as we're enjoying our freezies back from the store after uh, an afternoon of playing catch, uh, I had to explain to my daughter what the bong was. Which then she's like, well, what, what's a bong? And then, well, you know, all that glass that's up there, you know, those things that look like vases. Yeah, those aren't vases. That's for smoking marijuana. I go for lunch to a, a pita place uh, here in, in Oakville, Ontario, and there is a uh, hasty market or something right next door. And behind the counter is all manner of um, weirdly shaped colored glass. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. and, and I swear to God that this guy, that's he's got to be making a tremendous amount of money on that 
because uh, really it, well, I, I, first of all, how many bongs does one individual need? I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I talked to a band once, and they made their bongs out of apples. Right. You can make a bong out of pretty much anything, apparently. But the other thing was was that there is a rival variety store in my neighborhood that has been selling bongs for years, and I recently found out that the guy is also apparently selling weed behind the counter. Oh, what a surprise! And that the bongs were sort of that wink and a nudge for anyone who was looking. So it's making me wonder if the, the new guy who's running my corner variety store is getting in on that business and whether or not he's going to have a business to get in on come July 1st when we're supposed to have legalization. Yeah, this whole thing is a mess. It's going to happen, and it should have happened a long time ago. But once you put governments in charge of something like this, and once... You know what's happening? Oh, and there's not so much governments, but it's... it's um, Liquor manufacturers, they want to get in oh, on yeah. this because they see the legalization of, of marijuana and other cannabis products to be competition for their booze. It completely is. So so a lot of these these companies are investigating, you know, investments in um, in marijuana companies or maybe uh, diversifying their product line into that area. And, uh, I, you know, no wonder that the, the government of Ontario, I don't know what it's going to be like across the rest of the country, but no wonder the government of Ontario wants to, to have um, marijuana dispensaries or whatever you want to call them uh, modeled after their government-owned liquor stores. Right. I spoke to the CEO of the biggest marijuana company in this country, uh, who has Snoop Dogg as the spokesperson, by the way. Uh, he had sold 10% of his company to Constellation Brands, which most people know as uh, the Cerveza company, Corona, the, the maker of, of Corona. Uh, and that is just a 10% stake in the company. But what it is, is it's their foot in the door so that if, as the marijuana companies are telling us, is true, that in jurisdictions where weed has become legal, that alcohol consumption declines dramatically, as much as 40%, that they want to be able to get their uh, own weed products to market as well. The only issue, of course, is particularly in the United States, the biggest market, is that it's still a fractured environment. It's still illegal at the federal level, so you can't, you actually can't do business with a company that does business in marijuana if you are an American company. So it's created headaches for Canadians. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still a Schedule One drug in the United States. It's ranked right, right up there with cocaine and heroin, which is like, are you kidding me? But that's, that's America. But back in Canada, we also have a lot of different restrictions across the board. At this point, once weed becomes legal in this country, it's still illegal for the edibles. It's still illegal for additive products. Only that raw commodity is ultimately going to be what's legal on day one. But the expectation is largely that give it a year, give it two years and more, that you'll see the pendulum swing further in the other direction and they will legalize variations of the THC itself. See, I don't understand why Okay, so so I guess you could take the 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 raw leaf or, or or the whatever you want to call it and make your own edibles, but would that be illegal? That wouldn't be illegal unless you were selling it. Okay, so if you have the knowledge to make your own, you know, brownies or cookies or whatever, right? That's okay. Yes, but it's, it's funny you should bring that up because my neighbor a few doors down, in anticipation of legalization, uh, figured that she would be able to take advantage of the farmer's market that's in the park across the street. <laughs> and so she had been buying a metric 
ass load of weed so that she could make the baked products. Now, I don't know how much you know about baking with marijuana, but Nothing. what you're actually doing is, is you're, you're, you're cooking the, the, the marijuana into butter. Uh, and that is where the active ingredient comes from. That's why brownies are, are popular. That's why cookies are popular. That's why baking is popular, because you're generally baking it into that. But what she explained was that not only do you need a lot of weed to be able to accomplish this, but the smell in the house when you're doing it, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's the, the, the only reason why anybody's doing it is because, you know, there's stoners living uh, alone. Uh, as opposed to people who have families, because it's really difficult to actually make this without your child walking up going, what is that smell? See, I don't know any of these things because I have never been in that in that culture. Which is weird to me, considering your sex, drugs, and rock and roll I know. I lifestyle know. of a radio DJ. I know. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is all my brain and body need. Sex and drugs and rock and roll It's very good indeed Keep your silly ways Or throw them out the window The wisdom of your ways I've been there and I know Lots of other ways What a jolly bad show If all you ever do Is business You don't like my first serious girlfriend, her parents hated me because I was in music radio and assumed that all I was interested in was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, I know. I ran into that a lot with a lot of people saying, oh, long-haired, dope-smoking FM radio DJ. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's probably doing all kinds of weird sex while high. How did you get around what is a typical lifestyle um, that you would not engage in and often I would assume anyway would have a, a negative repercussion like oh look at the square Alan Cross in the corner not partaking. Well I'll tell you this there is a lot more that makes me square than just not smoking marijuana. Trust me. The main thing, though, is I am a militant, absolutely annoying, frustratingly um, intractable non-smoker. Okay. So I will not have any smoke in my lungs or my mouth or my sinuses or anything. I just will not, regardless of, of the source. So this isn't so much about um, a lack of control that comes with being uh, inebriated through marijuana. This has more to do with health. This has more to do with inhaling smoke. Yes, okay. that's what it all is. Now, if somebody wants to legalize a product that involves recreational uh, relaxation mm -hmm. with edibles... I'm all there. Dave's not here. I mean, you know, we sit here and do this podcast every week, and each of us has, has a glass of something that we're drinking to right. kind of just take the edge off things. This is no different. I just won't reach that stage of, mm. of, of relaxation or enlightenment through smoke. I just won't. Okay, so then what you need to understand is that the consumption of marijuana has a different effect on your body depending on the transmission vehicle. Correct. 
So you get uh, with with um, uh, uh, an edible, you get more of a full body high that sneaks up on you. And most people say it just makes them sleepy. Fine with me. Whereas um, the the inhaled high that comes with THC is more of a head high, which is the giggly high that people talk about. Yeah, you don't want me giggly. <laughs> you just you just don't. You want me mellowed out in the corner, very quiet, uh, so you don't have to deal with me. You know, and, and here's an interesting thing. My mother has terrible arthritis in one of her shoulders, and she can't take any more cortisone uh, shots because she's, she's 83, going to be 84 soon. She just can't take it. Uh, my sister, who um, has a different viewpoint on, on smokables than I do, who is it? Uh, has convinced my mother that when edibles come along, that uh, my mom... My Catholic mom mm-hmm. uh, try this as a way of pain management. And my mom says, yep, I'm all for it. Uh, I've got a relative who did uh, the oils for uh, sleeplessness. And uh, the problem is, is this particular relative suffered through the Second World War uh, in a very big way. And so I'm sure you can appreciate that when you live through something like that, it changes your perspective on a whole bunch of things, not the least of which is, you know, clean up your plate You know, there was a time when we didn't have food. So when it got to the end of the little bottle that you would uh, do a couple of drops into a glass of water before bedtime, uh, got to the end of the bottle, thought, you know what, um, there's still a little bit of of extra left in here. Maybe I'll just add a little bit of water to it, swish it around, and then that'll be fine. And the man knocked himself on his ass. Trying to be trying to be cheap about well you know there's still some stuff in there it's good stuff you don't want to waste it. <laughs> Listen, there was some uh, there were a couple of stories in the papers of the last couple of days about uh, army vets with uh, PTSD yes. and uh, how mer- medical marijuana was 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 saving their lives because they had seen and experienced and gone through so much that this was the only thing that allowed them to sleep that allowed them to relax that allowed to take the edge off that terrible anxiety that came with that PTSD. That was one of the reasons why there was a big hue and cry when the government of Canada reduced the benefits to uh, Canadian veterans for access to medical marijuana because of how it helps PTSD patients. I'm on HighTimes.com, so you know you can trust the source, uh, that uh, research has found ample evidence that um, fear learning contributes to anxiety, including PTSD, and that the active ingredient in marijuana helps ease fear and therefore many medications for treating PS, uh, PTSD offer this relief uh, and the side effect of uh, marijuana is that this helps in that respect I totally get it again I'm on board with all this stuff I, 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 hang on how did we even get down this rabbit hole this is supposed to be the space show okay well, well it's spaced out <laughs> ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer it's just like Hollywood visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit we'll even send you the album cover of your episode suitable for framing in your parents basement Falcon Heavy is configured for flight minus 15 standby for terminal count Ten, nine, eight. Side booster Six, five, four, three, two, one. If you had an opportunity to climb on board an Elon Musk SpaceX rocket and do a little space tourism, you'd be all in, right? Oh, completely, hundred percent. 
Now, this is going to change your mind a little bit because the big issue that uh, Elon Musk is facing right now is the way in which they fuel those uh, SpaceX rockets in the first place. Over at NASA, they've been screaming bloody murder that the Falcon 9 is a huge death trap for anyone who would climb on board it because of the way they go about fueling it. Now, this is still a liquid oxygen-based uh, rocket motor, yes? It is. And as you know, um, that if you put something in, you freeze something, well, not, you can't freeze the, the, this particular liquid, but if you put it under intense cold, that anything outside of water will shrink when it gets cold. And so what they're doing is they're packing more fuel into the same tank by super cooling it along the way. The problem with that is that you can't just super cool it, stick it in the tank and leave it. You need to maintain that temperature. And you can't do that for very long, very efficiently. Therefore, you fuel the rocket as the astronauts are climbing on board. And that is something that NASA has said for the last 50 years is the worst thing to do because that is the point at which you are at the greatest risk of the rocket blowing up. Okay, wait a second. What was the name of the U.S. government organization that launched the Challenger? Um, what are they called? Oh, NASA! That's right. That's right. Uh, this comes full circle back to the Challenger disaster, actually both those disasters in which they lost 14 uh, astronauts, is that it created an anti-risk culture within NASA, a risk-adverse culture that some are arguing that if we wanted to put a man on the moon today... NASA would be too scared to do so because they have a requirement for SpaceX and Boeing that involves very complicated calculations, but the chance of death can be no greater than one in every 270 flights. Now, keep in mind, when it came to the space shuttle, the chance of death was one in 12 hmm. on the day that they launched the very first one. Okay, now let's look back at the Saturn V. This was a rocket that was barely tested when they started going to the moon and with Apollo 8. The, they operated for expediency, for speed, in an all-up situation. In other words, they built it, they put it on the pad, they flew it. So other than tests on the ground and a couple of other suborbital things and, and low-orbit things, those giant firecrackers were expected to work the first time every time. And they did, because we never saw Saturn V blow up. But what we did see is a lot of rockets blowing up before that. And that was where NASA had learned that this fuel-and-go method that is used by SpaceX is the riskiest way to go because that's the point at which you've got the greatest chance of, of failure. There is an upside, though, when it comes to SpaceX with using this as the means of getting people into space. Because these vehicles are reused, they have a chance to look at the impact that the launch had on them and fix and repair and, and improve them. So ultimately, the Elon Musk side is we're keeping a close eye on it. The NASA side is we've got 50 years of experience telling us that fueling a rocket while there are astronauts on board is the worst way to go. It doesn't matter. Elon Musk wouldn't listen anyway. Did you uh, listen in on that conference call that he had with analysts the other day? 
Oh, my God, in which he was bored by serious questions about whether or not Tesla could actually make good on its promise to deliver the number of vehicles per week. It was like it's supposed to be 5,000. It's less than 2,000 at the moment. And he's all bored with people calling him to task on this. So where specifically will you be in terms of uh, you're, you're capital next. requirement? Next. Next. Boring bonehead questions are not cool. Next. You know, I kind of like it because... Elon Musk is is the template for Tony Stark. And that's exactly that's exactly how Tony Stark would have dealt with some Wall Street guys in exactly the same way. And I'm looking at some tweets that he sent out. First, it's important to note that Tesla is the most shorted, meaning most bet against stock in the market and has been for a while. The two questioners I ignored on the Q1 call are sell side analysts who represent a short seller's thesis, not investors. So that's that's he, he got annoyed at, at uh, some of these people. It's not much of a surprise. Tesla has failed to make good on its promises pretty much every step of the way. They relied way too much on automation for their assembly line systems. Ford, General Motors, Chrysler could all have told him long time ago, back in the 80s, that full automation of an assembly line was virtually impossible. And so Tesla was admitting that the bulk of the delays in getting the vehicles into people's garages had everything to do with the fact that they were so focused on perfecting the automated assembly line that they should have just gone, you know what? Actual human beings are probably better off for these particular stages of the production. Have you sat in a Tesla? No. Why? I was at a dealership because I looked at a, uh, a, a Model S and I wanted the P100, which is the one with ludicrous mode. And then I, then I looked at a Model X, which is their SUV. And I got to tell you something. I... If, if I had that kind of coin, $150,000-ish for the um, Model X that I'd want, uh, I'd get one. I, I really would. It seemed to be very well built. It seemed to have, um, oh, it's got more technology than you can possibly imagine. And one of the things I like is got this huge, huge display screen in the middle of the dashboard. And, and if you're bored and you want to uh, pretend that your GPS is actually... Um, navigating you across the surface of Mars, you can do it. You just hit a button and there's your little rover and you're, you are on Mars. You will be surprised that I'm going to recommend to you a Netflix TV series called Fastest Car. I am hooked. The adrenaline rush history racing is insane. Every car has its own unique feeling. But money doesn't always win. Oh my God. The last man standing will have the fastest car. Man, I don't want pieces of your car flying out of Let the shit talking begin. Oh, this is, is it built or no? Do you buy it or build it? It's four vehicles that are in a drag race each right. episode. And so, of course, the drag race only takes seconds. So you, it's all about the storytelling of the personalities behind the vehicles. It's three uh, it's four cars. One car is a supercar, and then the other three cars are sleeper cars. You familiar with the term sleeper car? It is something that they invented for this series. A sleeper car is something that looks really, really normal, but under the hood and under the uh, under the body is some really, really high tech stuff that makes this thing go really fast in a straight line. My favorite episode so far is the guy who pulled up in a Ferrari and had learned about the launch mode by watching YouTube videos. Yeah. 
And, and then going up against three people who have made drag racing their lives. And, of course, they're just disgusted that this kid with his $700,000 supercar just read about the mode and watched a video and then cleaned their clocks. Do you know what, do you what, you know what lunch mode is? I, I have it on my card. Do you know what it is? Tell me. Okay. Basically, what you do is uh, it's a special setting. You put your foot on the brake. You have to engage launch control, launch mode, dynamic launch, dynamic start. There's a bunch of different names for it. You uh, engage it in your, on your car. You put your uh, left foot on the brake. And then you uh, put your right foot on the gas, rev it up to well, 4,000, 4,500, 5,000 RPM. And then when you let <laughs> your foot off the brake, you launch forward. And uh, it's it's a pretty... Put it this way, your lips will be by your ears. <laughs> and the, the only the only cars that are better at that sort of thing are, are Teslas. I saw a drag race between a Model X, which is the SUV, and a Lamborghini. And this was the high-end Model X, the one with ludicrous mode. And this thing, because it has pretty much infinite torque and there's no gear shifts, this thing cleaned the Lamborghini just destroyed it there was a lambo driver who showed up as the seven hundred thousand dollar supercar in another episode and this guy was like your sleazy a divorce lawyer who made a bajillion dollars and liked to boast that not only did he uh, race uh, uh, other high-end vehicles but also planes like jet planes and oh, crap like that shut up oh yeah, yeah and then because he's accustomed to doing you know uh, rally racing and track racing when it went five flashes of red five flashes of amber one flash of green and you go it did five flashes of red and soon as it went amber he jumps the gun and takes off like a shot and it was like a complete metaphor for premature ejaculation <laughs> yeah you know they're gonna find all the you know to make good TV, they're going to find a bunch of sleaze bags uh, who are, you know, these one percenters with their stupid cars. I, 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 I totally understand. The problem was, is one of the sleeper kids saw the other guy go and went, oh, I guess we got to go. And he went too, so he got disqualified as well. Oh. Yeah. Time now for Geeks and Beats Update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. First annual Toronto Vinyl Summit coming up. As a matter of fact, on this broadcast day, it's tonight. Yeah, we are trying something different. I'm working with a guy named Morgan Ross. Uh, Morgan Cameron Ross, he's a singer-songwriter, and he does a lot of things with uh, My Old Toronto, or Old Toronto, and an uh, organization called Myzeum. We did something back last fall that worked really well, and we thought that we would do something with The Rec Room. Now, The Rec Room is owned by Cineplex Odeon. Cineplex has this uh, real estate issue that they're trying to diversify beyond just having movie theaters. So they've got this adult arcade, basically. And the one that we're going to be doing this at is at the uh, foot of the CN Tower in the Roundhouse. And uh, there's a back room with a, with a big screen, some tables, and a bar. And what we're going to do is basically talk about vinyl for, for an hour. Uh, people are 
willing are, are invited to bring their their coolest vinyl records that they can show off to a lot of people. There's going to be a presentation with me, uh, Ivor Hamilton, who is the VP of Catalog at Universal Music Canada. He is the guy that puts out all the cool box sets and oh, reissues. Yeah. And there's uh, Kim Bolderev. Uh, he's the co-founder of the t- downtown uh, Toronto Downtown Record Show. We did a podcast at one of his events uh, a number of years ago. Isn't he also the guy behind the Sonic Temple? Yes, yes, he is. That's him. And he, Ivor's going to talk about all the new stuff mm-hmm. and then... Akeem is going to talk about old stuff. So we're basically covering both ends of the vinyl spectrum there. So we're talking tips and tricks when it comes to collecting vinyl. Yes. And how to grade and price a used record. Yes. Uh, What to avoid when building a vinyl collection. There are many things that you could screw up at. What sorts of records are worth collecting? Which ones that you should, should leave alone? For example, one of the least collectible vinyl records out there right now, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. No one cares. No one cares. Anymore. No one cares because there are so many copies out there on vinyl that they have. You know, it's, it's a supply and demand situation, right? Uh, okay, but at the same time, one of the hottest stacks of wax going, Sesame Street Fever. I wonder if that would be collectible, dude. I grew up on that double album set. I, I listen. I, I, I know. would you pay for a copy? I, I, I would pay probably a hundred, like knowing that I don't even have a turntable. I would just like a copy that I could put in a frame and I'd be willing to pay $100 for a well-used, I don't want pristine, I want well-used copy. Okay, so what's it, what's it called? Sesame Street Fever. It was literally a, a, a complete spoof of Saturday Night yeah, Fever. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Featuring Grover, of course, on the cover. Sesame Street Fever. Here it is. Uh, you can go and get a copy right now <laughs> for a dollar twenty six. Really? A dollar twenty six. If you go to discogs.com, which is a really good site for uh, finding uh, uh, what records are available uh, and also what people are selling these things for in their marketplace, a dollar twenty six. There are a hundred and one copies available right now. So clearly, I need to go to the first annual Toronto Vinyl Summit. We are yes. We are ene- endeavoring to uh, bring it to you live as well. Many aspects of it by doing a Facebook Live. Are, are we going to have internet access to be able to pull this off? Uh, we're gonna. Yeah, we yeah, Morgan's going on a on a on a technical run uh, on Tuesday, okay. so we'll find out. All right. So this so, is Wednesday, May 9th. Doors open at seven thirty. Tickets are ten dollars in advance, thirteen at the door. If you're going to Canadian Music Week, you have a wristband or badge. A limited number will be accepted for free admission. Get there early. Morgan's going to perform. Then we're going to do our thing in the middle, and then uh, Julian Taylor is going to perform at the end. Julian is a fantastic talent. Uh, it's it's a it's a great thing. Oh, and we've got a Fluence turntable to give away, and the guys from Paradigm will be. Hey, there. Hang on, back up. That turntable is pretty sweet. It's uh yeah, it's worth at least three hundred bucks. 
uh, to Fluence Turntable, the PT81. Very good reviews on this thing. And I should point out that the uh, reps from Paradigm, a great Canadian speaker company, they'll be there with a high-end audio unit. So uh, they'll be in one of the dens off to the side. So uh, you can go in there and listen to how good vinyl can sound. You can play, you know, play, listen to their records or you can play your own. So follow us on Facebook if you can't make it down and make sure that you set up your notifications to let you know when we are live. And we'll endeavor to bring that whole thing to you uh, live and direct if you can't uh, join us there at the rec room down uh, just south of uh, Skydome, basically. It's basically that Skydome CN Tower area. Yeah, it's right across the street from Ripley's Aquarium in the in the in the uh, old uh, roundhouse building. We have a new co-producer this week. And that is Michael Rosario. Michael, thank you so much for opening your wallet wide. 25 bucks for a single episode gets your name on the album art, which we will send to you. You can print off, frame, and hang in your parents' basement, which is exactly what Antoinette Van Dickenberg did last week. She sent us a picture, which is on our Instagram page. Oh, lovely. I saw that. That's very, yeah. Thank you very much for that. We want to say thank you and goodbye to Fabian Shioshiza. That's not how you pronounce it at all. Fabian Shosha? Skyosha? No, no, it's Shosha. We, Shosha. we went through this already. Oh, did we? Okay, Fabian Shosha, okay. Uh, and Heather Wood, uh, both former producers. Uh, so we uh, got the notification from Patreon that uh, you uh, uh, said goodbye. So we want to say thank you so much for being uh, so helpful for the show and very generous as well. Now, wh- why did they say goodbye? Did they just run out of money or do they think that we stink? Maybe it's a little of column A. Maybe it's a little column B. We did get uh, one of our longtime listeners, Scott Coates, who's out there on the literally Bangkok, Thailand, the other side of the world, telling us, you know what? I don't know if I like this uh, uh, one guest show idea. If I don't like the guest, or I'm not interested in the topic, I, I got nothing. So maybe this episode is for him. All about <laughs> weed and space. <laughs> and, and vinyl. And vinyl, too. Right. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Who?